Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And today we're continuing to study faith and unbelief. Last time we decided to consider a key element in the issue of faith that's often neglected. Yes, we must have faith. But equally important, we must recognize and eliminate unbelief. Uh, because if we allow a mixture of faith and unbelief to dwell in our heart, the unbelief will nullify our faith. It may be a surprise to you that it's possible to have faith and unbelief. But the problem with the mixture, again, is that the unbelief pre prevents the faith from producing results. Jesus said this in Mark 11:23. He said, have faith in God. But then he said, assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not allow doubt into his heart, but believes those things that he says will come to pass, he'll have what he says. Notice he says that one of the conditions for success is not just that he believes, but he actually keeps that doubt out of his heart, because otherwise that faith will shut down. Clearly this person has faith, but he's also warned he must not allow doubt in to his heart. For his faith to be effective and produce results, he's got to stop the doubt entering his heart. You see, if unbelief is mixed with faith, it short circuits the power of God. And so the results are not just promised to the one who believes, but the one also who stops doubt from entering his heart. Now Jesus isn't talking about doubt thoughts coming into our head, because we all know what that means. It's only when you accept those thoughts as true and you receive them as final authority in your heart that when you believe something contrary to God's word, that's when it's doubt in the heart. You see, for most people who are struggling to receive from God, the problem is not a lack of faith. They can tell you the scriptures. Jesus actually said, all you need is faith as a mustard seed and you could see great results. So the problem is not a lack of faith. The problem is actually is, probably, that, that the presence of faith's enemy, doubt, unbelief in our heart, causes that faith to be dysfunctional. And that makes us double-minded. You know, we think of Smith Wigglesworth as a man of great faith. But you've probably got more knowledge of the Word of God than, than Smith had. What's the difference? He was radical in eliminating unbelief from his life. He lived a separated life. He kept his heart from being hardened by worldly influences, keeping it sensitive to God, you see. He took communion every morning at five. He didn't go 30 minutes without praying. People who hosted him often said their food went cold because uh, he insisted on praying, you see. And, and when Semmel, Lester Summerall visited him one time as a young man, dressed in a suit with a newspaper under his arm and a bowler hat. He tells the story how Smith gruffly stopped him at the door and told him he couldn't come in until he got rid of that newspaper. And Smith said, I don't let any unbelief into my house. He didn't allow himself, you see, to meditate on anything else except the word. He isolated himself from all sources of unbelief. So it wasn't just that he had faith, but it was a pure faith. It was uncontaminated by unbelief. He kept his heart free from that. You see, both faith and unbelief come by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, inclining your ear to the word, but unbelief comes by giving attention and hearing the world the natural world. So it all depends, you see, where your focus is. Where's your meditation? 
Whatever you give your attention to will grow and increase in your life. If you consistently put the word first as your first authority, feed your faith, and starve your doubts, you'll start to get results. But if you think you can feed them both at the same time, it's, it's not going to work. Heart faith is softness, sensitivity to the voice of God, tuned in to receive the life and the power of God. But unbelief, natural unbelief, is sensitivity to the voice of the world that comes through our senses, and it hardens us to what is spiritual. So we control the both of those by, you know, whether one grows or the other grows, by what our preoccupation. If you're preoccupied with God, if he's your treasure, if that's where your heart is, there'll not be room for anything else, and you'll become hardened to other voices. So you won't be dominated so much by what you see, by what's happening around you. But if you get very occupied with natural things, you take your eyes off Jesus, then your heart will become hardened to spiritual things because you're now tuned in to natural things. So we need to meditate day and night in the Word of God. Then we all have success. Not just half the time in the Word, half the time in the world. We need to be balanced, yes, as Christians, but being balanced doesn't mean having an equal measure of faith and unbelief. What I want to get across here is it's not just about you cultivating your faith. You also have to guard your heart and refuse to let unbelief in. I think it's interesting when Jesus described what true believers are like in John chapter 10. He's the shepherd and we're his sheep. I want you to notice this description, and if it's true of you. John 10:4. when he brings out, he's speaking of himself, his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yes, believers, they know his voice. They receive his word. Yet, number two, they will by no means follow a stranger, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So not only do believers hear the word, but they reject any contrary voice, the voice of a stranger. By no means, he says. Is that true of you? They will not respond to any other voice. They will not respond to the voice of unbelief. This is true of sheep, you know. Shepherds would used to use a communal sheepfold. And then in the morning, they would call, make their call, and only their sheep would follow them because their sheep knew the shepherd's voice. Uh, a silly sheep that just followed any voice that spoke with any authority would very soon be caught and uh, stolen and killed. If you listen to both voices, if they both have authority in your life, you'll be double-minded, you'll receive nothing. You might say, I have faith, but maybe it's being nullified by your unbelief because you're listening to both voices. It's, you must keep unbelief out. This is an active thing. This is not a passive thing. You must actively reject wrong beliefs, wrong thoughts. How? By your words. You denounce. You contradict those wrong beliefs and you declare your beliefs. You know, if a thief came to your front door and to rob your house, would you just be passive? No. You would open your mouth and you'd run him off. Well, you need to do that with those unbelief thoughts. You must recognize the lie and then speak against it, just like Jesus when he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Two things are necessary. 
You need to cultivate your faith, but you also need to guard your heart against unbelief. It's like gardening. Genesis 2.15. God wanted Adam and Eve to learn the principles of successful gardening because the same principles apply to our spiritual life. He said, the Lord God took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things. Number one, to tend it, and number two, to keep it. That means to guard it. So, yes, you need to cultivate the faith in your heart, to plant the seed of faith and cultivate it. But also, you have to guard your heart, and you've got to keep the weeds of unbelief out. Otherwise, they'll choke the good seed that's in you. And, th- and that's what Jesus said in the parable of the sower as well. He said, the ones th- sown among thorns with an unguarded heart. It says they hear the word, but the problem is the cares of the world and all the other things, all those weeds in there, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so Abraham is a great example. You see, we say Abraham's the father of all those who believe, and he is. We talk about his great faith, but really, if you think about it, the most impressive thing about Abraham was not his great faith, because in a way, you know the word of God much more. You should have far greater faith than Abraham if it was just about you knowing the word and the word giving you faith. What was impressive about Abraham is the way he guarded his heart against unbelief. He refused to meditate on the natural. He disciplined his thought life so that it was submitted and controlled by the word that he heard. I want to give you three quick examples from the life of Abraham. Uh, that illustrate this very impressive uh, mind. He, he says that he, in, in, in Genesis, when, when the story starts, that he was called to go out to the place where he would receive as an inheritance. This is Hebrews 11. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, he was obedient to God. He didn't know where he was going. And then it says, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, you know, and and where they would have had a nice house and a high standard of living, had they called that to mind, you see, now they've got to live in a tent and have quite a hard life by comparison. It says, if they had called to mind that country from the past, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they were actually looking for the kingdom of God, a heavenly country. You see, the key to his success and greatness wasn't just that he heard God's voice and initially obeyed it, but that later he refused to call to mind. He refused to even think about it. He refused to even entertain that other voice that was saying, oh, go back, you can have a much easier life. You can have a higher standard. He could have meditated on the voice of his flesh, calling him back to the old life. And if he wouldn't have guarded his heart and refused to call that to mind, he would have ended up returning home. And God's plan and blessing would have been aborted. But he refused to even call it to mind, you see. There's certain things you just shouldn't even touch with your thought life. It should be an abhorrence to you, a no-go area. God has spoken it's settled. So I'm not going to entertain what ifs. Second, what about when he received the promise of a son? That's in Romans 4, 18 to 21. You know the story. He was 100 years old and uh, his wife was 90. God said, I'm going to give you a baby. 
God had spoken and that settled it. And it says that not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. And 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was received strength by faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to perform. Now that's impressive, you see. God, he took God's word as the final authority. He didn't even consider the impossibility due to his old body and Sarah's old body. He disciplined his thought life, you see, to the word of God. He guarded his heart against any other thoughts of unbelief, you see. And he just, whenever he thought about it, he just gave glory to God. He focused on God's promise. He said, God, I thank you. You're going to bring it to pass. I don't know how, but you're going to do it. And then when he offered up Isaac... The greatest test of faith. God told him to offer up his only son Isaac. You know, he had to discipline his mind. Because he, he was quick to obey. He had to focus on God's promise. How easy it would have been to let his imagination go to riot. As to the disastrous consequences of doing this thing. And how his whole life would fall apart. And Sarah would never forgive him and so on and so on. And he had to discipline his mind to focus on God's promise. God had promised to establish his covenant through Isaac. So he had to refuse to let his mind run wild, imagining Isaac dead and all the rest of it. Otherwise, unbelief would have swamped his heart and he never would have obeyed God. But he focused on the promise. And from the promise, he was able to believe that even if he killed him, God would raise him from the dead. And that's in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. You know, Abraham did not see him dead because he saw him resurrected from the dead because God would have had to do that to fulfill his promise. And so Abraham kept unbelief out of his heart. That's already what makes him it's so impressive. You know, one classic example of faith and unbelief is when Jesus came walking on the water in Matthew 14. I love this story. You know, when Peter said to him, Lord, if, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and, and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? See, little faith is when, it's, when there's doubt there as well. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You see, when, when Peter heard Jesus say, come, he received the faith to walk on the water. And so he got out the, the boat. He started walking on the water by faith. He had faith. And he was actually walking on the word of Jesus because water can't hold you up. You know, and as long as he walked and he kept his eyes on Jesus and his focus on the word of God, the power of God flowed through his faith and enabled him to overcome gravity. So what went wrong? He lost his focus and his mental discipline. His eyes came off Jesus and the word, and instead he focused on the problem. It says he saw. He saw the strength of the wind and the waves. As if it makes any difference as to your ability to walk on water, whether the wind is blowing strong or not. But anyway, he saw it. His senses were impressed by all the waves, by all the circumstances around him. He stopped looking at Jesus and he started seeing all the circumstances around him. And this opened the door of his heart. He didn't protect his heart by focusing on Jesus. 
the door of his heart came open to unbelief coming in through the natural world. And the fear came into his heart that he would sink to his death. You know, his success actually wasn't dependent on how suitable his natural circumstances were. That made no difference. The only thing that mattered was the power of God working through his faith, which was easily strong enough to overcome all those natural things. And I want you to notice that at this point it only sa it says he began to sink. He didn't sink like a stone. That meant his faith was still present even when he was sinking. His faith was still present and God's power was still flowing. But the unbelief that had entered in was beginning to cause the power to shut down. That's why he began to sink slowly. It was nullifying his faith, you see. And so he began to sink. And the more he sank, of course, the more he would have been gripped by fear and unbelief. And he would have started to sink faster because the power shut down even more. But it proves that faith and unbelief can be present together. Finally, he had to cry out to Jesus, of course, to save him. And so... Unbelief and faith can be together, but the unbelief cancels the effect of your faith. His failure was not due to a lack of faith, but because he allowed the entrance of unbelief into his heart. Through meditation on natural circumstances and difficulties until he gave those things more authority over him than the word of Jesus. Rather than being single-minded on Jesus, you see, he allowed his focus to be turned on to natural forces even though God's supernatural power was easily enough to cause him to succeed, whatever natural stuff was going on, he got distracted, in other words. His attention became divided between Jesus and the natural things. He became double-minded, and God's power was short-circuited. When he came into the ship, the wind ceased. It says they were so amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they wondered we might think that's understandable, this amazement, but actually it was a sign of unbelief. You know, when you're amazed when God does something for you, that's unbelief. Shouldn't you be expecting that? That's what it says in the next verse 52. It says, they were amazed. Why? Because they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. They, their heart was hardened. They were so shocked that Jesus actually came to save them because of the unbelief. They shouldn't have been surprised to see these miracles, you see. They'd seen God's power flow to feed the 5,000 just recently. But they had hardness. They had unbelief in their heart. This wasn't a rebellious unbelief. You know, that's when you just willfully reject God's word. It, it wasn't that. Something else caused their heart to be hardened. It says, because they considered not the miracle of the loaves. You see... When he fed the 5,000, they should have considered, they should have meditated on the meaning of the miracle and what it told them about Jesus and his power as, as the bread of life, as the provision for their needs. They, but actually, they were just happy that their stomach was filled. They didn't give it another thought. They just were back into their natural life again. They didn't think on spiritual things. And so it wasn't the result of some sin. The unbelief was simply due to a lack of meditation on the Lord because they were consumed with natural things, you see. This is what I call natural unbelief, and that's just due to over-preoccupation on natural things, natural circumstances. If they had been meditating on all the miracles Jesus had done, you know, they would have expected him to do these things. You see, when we neglect the word of God, when we pay more attention to the things of the world, this natural unbelief will get into our heart. 
Soon after, there was a fourth feeding of the 4,000. But their unbelief prevented them from believing he could do it again. I want you to see this uh, surprise here in Mark 8. It says, In those days the multitude being very great, having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I've got compassion on the multitude because they now have continued with me three days and they've got nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. And why did Jesus say this to them? He was testing them to see if they would respond and say, well, Jesus, you did it before, you could do it again, you can feed them. But (laughs) their answer was disappointing in verse 4. Then the disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Hadn't he just fed the 5,000 and yet they've forgotten it, faded out of their mind. This is the hardness of their heart. You see, they were obsessed with the natural impossibility and they didn't have faith in Jesus. They, they were still in unbelief, you see. They had forgotten what God had done for them, you see. It wasn't at the forefront of their mind because they'd not been meditating on it. This is spiritual dullness, forgetfulness, hardness of heart, unbelief. You know, perhaps God did a miracle for you. And you thought, I'll never doubt God again. But then another problem hits you and you were all over the place. <laughs> What's that? Why? Because you forgot what God had done for you before. What you're thinking on, you see, controls what gets into your heart and your resulting actions. You know, if you're meditating on God and all that he's done, then when a problem hits you, you're going to respond in faith because you're conscious of God and his power and his provision. But if you're absorbed in natural things, those spiritual realities will have faded out of your consciousness and unbelief will grip your heart and it will stop you responding in faith. Well, Jesus went on and he fed, fed the 4,000 again. And then I want you to notice that he then gave them uh, a telling off after he fed the 4,000. In Mark 8:13, it says, He left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. I want you to notice that they've got one bread between them. Their eyes are on natural things. They have a lack of food now and that they're consumed with. Now, Jesus was obviously making a spiritual lesson about leaven of Pharisees and so on. But they were so carnal, all they thought was he's talking about their lunch. What was gripping their mind was their lack of food. They were so focused on their lack of having only one loaf of bread. They forgot Jesus could multiply bread to feed 5,000, let alone to the 12 of them. And he, he, they said, we got no bread. Jesus took this opportunity to address the issue of their chronic unbelief, which was stopping them enter into the blessing of God. In verse 17, Jesus, being aware of this, said to them, Why do you reason? Why are you worried? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? He's telling them off. Having eyes of faith, do you not see spiritually? And having ears, do you not hear? He diagnoses their problem, you see, unbelief. It wasn't their lack of faith, because he said they had eyes to see and ears to hear. They had faith, but their faith was being hindered because they had allowed unbelief, hardness of heart. It's like a veil over their eyes, so they can't see spiritually. 
and, and perceive spiritual truth with the clarity necessary to act on it, you see, as if it were true. And as a result, God's power was broken. The problem is that the miracles had not affected their thinking. They didn't meditate on them. They didn't remember them, you see. And so to help them now, Jesus is going to help them meditate and remember the miracles that he had so that they're not going to panic when there's only one piece of bread left, you know, because they know they put their trust in him. Verse 18, do you not remember, he said, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were left? And then he says, 12. And, and when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. You see, the problem was that they had forgotten the word. It was at the back of their minds. It was drowned out by their preoccupation with natural things so that their faith wasn't functioning. So he wanted them to remember, to meditate on his miracles and, and his love. His, and, and, you know, to remember is to bring something to the front of your mind. That's what meditation does. And as you do that, the scales of unbelief, as you remember what God has done, how good he is, the miracles he's done in the past, the scales of unbelief will fall off your eyes. And you'll see that God's power is easily enough to, to satisfy all your need and supply according to the riches of his grace. Praise God. As your unbelief is removed, the, your faith will be activated to receive the power of God. And in verse 20, he said to them, how is it you do not understand? He says, come on, guys. Think about the significance of the miracles. Don't you understand? Don't you see? Don't you get it? They prove that I have compassion on you, that I love you, that I will meet your needs. I'm more than enough for every need. I won't let you go hungry. I'm bigger than your problems. I'm able to meet all your needs. You don't have to fear in the face of lack. I'll provide for you. You can trust me and it will all be well. And he says the same to you right now. Don't forget his benefits. Remember, meditate on all he's done. And the, and the unbelief will be banished. And your faith will prevail to the glory of God in your life.